when the subject of transatlantic slavery is covered at school, children in the UK only ever get a narrow glimpse into the lives of the people who were enslaved. How willing are we as a society to expose the intimate facets of enslaved life to our children? Today we will be looking at the effectiveness of using narrative literature as a tool to give children a more comprehensive overview of how life could be for those who are forced into an enslaved existence. Storying History is a series of radio programmes for anybody with an interest in how history is represented. And good morning and a very warm welcome to all our listeners tuned in to this week's episode of Storying History, Lifting the Lid Through Literature. My name is Ethan Stafford-Cookson. Some of you listening might know me from my documentary series, Watchdog Ethan Examines. However, my turn has come to host an episode of Storing History. And hot on the menu today are various topics surrounding three educational books. These are Gwaku, Al Slavin Khoboda and Haumoy Vitikben. All these texts are available in English and have recently been proposed as additional reading material for the Key Stage 3 history curriculum. If you're unfamiliar with that term, Key Stage 3 refers to the first three years of secondary school, so that's ages 11 to 14. Thank you very much, Dr. Dor. <laughs> right, here with me today, ready to take a deep dive into various topics and elements surrounding these books, is somebody who, as you can tell, just so happens to be very knowledgeable about the British school curriculum. It is none other than the renowned children's book author and expert himself, Dr. Tyler Dor. Good morning and thanks for having me on. You can just call me Tyler. Dr. Dory is a bit of a mouthful. Thank you, Tyler. And I'm pleased that we are having this discussion today. As I'm sure you're aware, the way in which black history is covered in the secondary school curriculum has been a contentious topic for a very long time, both here in the UK and much further afield. Recently, Florida's Republican governor has even gone as far as to ban the teaching of African American studies in Florida high schools. Now, before we plunge into our main topic, could you just alight on whether you could see a drastic move being taken here in the UK? Well, I think it would be absolutely ridiculous to outright ban the teaching of black history. It's extremely irresponsible to purposefully erase a people's history in order to score cheap political points and stoke the flames in the current political climate of culture wars. A people's history shouldn't be purposely withheld, nor should it be whitewashed in order to make it more palatable. As things currently stand in the UK, the modules relating to black history are all optional and aren't usually selected for teaching. This is definitely something I believe the education examining boards should address and revise. Thank you, Tyler. And I would agree with you there. Now, also joining us for our discussion this morning is a regular commentator on this channel, notorious for his at time controversial hot takes, is the historical analyst, Professor Yurugu. <laughs> Oh, stop it, you. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be back. Now, Nathaniel, I... Professor Urugu. <laughs> oh, yes. Apologies. Professor Urugu. I know that you also take a keen interest in the subject material covered in our school's history programmes. And now, having read the three books, I wondered if you found the text to be age-appropriate for the intended audience? Oh, absolutely. I actually maintain the position that one could never be too young to learn about the atrocities committed throughout history, for knowledge is absolutely vital in keeping us from repeating the same mistakes as a society. And the earlier this starts to be instilled in our youth, the better, really. 
I'd say that my biggest bone of contention, however, is with the history curriculum itself. As things currently stand, there is just a lack of breath in the topics which are taught at Key Stage 3 and beyond. Very profound, as always, Professor. What about you, Dr. Daw? Do you share a similar assessment? Yeah, I fully agree with Professor Yurugo that the current history curriculum taught in British secondary schools just isn't comprehensive enough. Certainly when it comes to black history and the range of topics covered in Key Stage 3 and GCSE syllabuses. However, when it comes to how we cover the intricate life stories of enslaved people, my assessment is that a one-size-fits-all approach would be quite harmful in a school setting. It's of vital importance to distinguish between the information that would be considered appropriate for children as young as 11 and the information appropriate for older students who are doing A-levels, for example. In order to teach effectively, we need to take the learner's capacity to process sensitive information into account. Very interesting. And on that point you make about age-appropriate learning, having read these books, there certainly were some very heavy topics at play. Things such as sexual violence, explicit brutality, betrayal, extreme distress, and even suicide. And these are all very challenging topics to navigate, even as an adult. In Gwaku, for instance, we see a young boy stripped of his childhood and taken on a ship with no knowledge of what is happening around him. We see him traded between powerful figures like a commodity. And we see his friendship with Afwa developed throughout the book, which eventually culminates into feelings for her and his struggle as he's forced to leave her just like his family. Eventually, we see Gwaku free in the Netherlands. And I use the word free very loosely as we still see him trapped in a foreign country, away from his family and friends, feeling like an outcast and still treated as a slave, even if he is labelled as a servant. And that's where he comes to the realisation. He wants to share his story to the world and writes about how he feels in his story, which actually helped with the creation of this book, which was published in 2018 by Eneke Mok. The book is a comic with lots of images and not massive amounts of text or complex vocabulary for a younger audience. This is just a summary, however, and later on in the podcast, we will discuss themes throughout the book and, and the others I've mentioned earlier. Now, Tyler, were there any similarities in How Moy Vitik Ben that you would like to discuss? Yeah, from what I can see, there are many similarities between Quacko and the book that I focused on, Humoy Vitek Ben. This is a children's book aimed at children of the Key Stage 3 age group, written by Dolph Faroon and published in 2016. As for the story, we're introduced to a young girl, Maria, who receives an enslaved child as a present for her 12th birthday. Overall, the reading experience is very shocking and unsettling. One way in which this book is quite different, though, is that it is not from the perspective of an enslaved person like the other books we're discussing. We see the world through Maria's eyes, shedding light on the average white child's attitudes towards black people, race, sexuality, etc. at the time that the book is set, which, by the way, is intentionally left vague so that it could apply to anywhere in the Americas during the era of slavery. The author attempts to make these heavy themes more accessible to a young audience by using relatively simple language and striking illustrations. However, it will be interesting to discuss to what extent this is actually successful a bit later on. Now, what about the book that you focused on, Professor Yurugo? The first thing which struck me about Al Slavin Geboren is that unlike the other two books, it is not narrated in a chronological order. However, simple language is used throughout, making it very accessible for young readers as well. So at the heart of this story are three generations of enslaved women, namely a young girl called Maisa, her mother Kaisha, and her grandmother Shani, and the focus is on what their lives looked like when they were aged 14. The storytelling is done in a scattered fashion using many flashbacks. Information about the burdens which they were put through are uncovered piece by piece, 
One of the things all three women share is that they were subjected to sexual violence and had to endure a lot of misery and pain while on the plantation. Interestingly, Dr. Dor, your observation about vagueness regarding the setting of who Moivitik Ben also resonates with Alslavin Geboren, because yet again we have a story that is playing out in an unspecified setting. In the book's prologue, the author, Marian Hufnagel, actually states that it is set in the 17th or 18th century. Further, she discloses that the plantation, which is central to the story, did not really exist. Neither did the characters, however the events which she describes were commonplace in plantations. Personally, I think this story is a great example of critical fabulation. My, my, my. There is certainly a lot to unpack here. And that's before we elucidate on that wonderful term you mentioned right at the end there. Critical fabulation. Ah, wonderful. More about that later on. Right, we will take a short break. After the break, we will continue our discussion surrounding the themes of innocence and violence within our respective books. And we will also share our thoughts about whose perspective we believe our books to be narrated from and whether this is important for the storytelling. Welcome back after the break. Still in the studio with me are Tyler and Professor Yurugu. Are you ready to give a rundown of our first succession point, Tyler? Sure. Throughout all three books, the interlinked themes of innocence and childhood are a constant feature. For starters, all three books have a very young protagonists, and therefore we experience all of the stories through the eyes of children. This obviously has a profound effect on the reading experience in many different ways. Firstly, it can be a very jarring but very educational way of showing that no one was safe from the atrocities committed during this period, not even children. And in the case of Humoivitic Ben, it shows the counterpart of this, that even white children were actively participating in the ownership of enslaved people. Then, it can also be seen as a useful narrative tool for a few reasons. First, there's the fact that children are naive, so as they learn things, so do we as the audience. For example, we get to see Maria's reaction to finding out that white slave owners often had illegitimate children with enslaved women, which would also be an educational moment for the young target audience of the book. Now, having read the books, would you say that there is evidence that enslaved women were perceived in a sexual light at an earlier age than, say, white women were? Whilst white women were expected to wait until marriage to engage in any kind of sexual relations, the enslaved women were usually sexualized at a much younger age and were often manipulated into having illegitimate children with their white masters, which we see in all three books. After all, more children meant an increase of additional labor at no cost to the plantation owner. Having that mentality would embolden them to target enslaved women as soon as they were approaching childbearing age. This does also highlight the hypocrisy of the slaveholders, as having illegitimate children goes against their Christian beliefs. But let's not go too deep into the theme of sexual violence now, because we'll discuss that later. Yeah, I do find a dichotomy between the outward projection of religious piousness and the barbaric acts committed by the enslavers absolutely staggering. But yes, we will digress for now and discuss that later on. Another thing which the books touched upon is how the social lives of children who were born to enslavers and the enslaved would take distinctly separate turns as they started to grow up. For instance, in Alslavin Geboren, we learn that Maisa, Missy Eline and Meneer Walter used to be inseparable as children, the latter two being the white children of the enslaver. Playing children's games like Knickeren and Verstoppertje, they had a very close connection together when they were younger. This is not to suggest that the children would have been unaware of their differences. Quite the contrary, to borrow a term from Akala, the author of Natives, 
Children were racialized as white or black depending on the social forces which were at play in their lives. However, plantation houses were often in an isolated setting, with the next plantation house a ways away, and this enabled the children of the slavers to have a degree of social interaction with children born to the enslaved. Hmm, that's an interesting observation. I recently read the book White Innocence by Gloria Vecca. I also watched her TED talk where she makes the point that growing up, all the children's books she had access to had white protagonists. When she painted a picture in her mind of the perfect story, and when she put her pen to the paper, all the characters wound up being white, and it was set in Europe rather than, for example, having it set in Africa or centred around black characters in the diaspora. Looking back, she's stunned by the lack of diversity in the literature of her childhood, conceding that this narrow worldview in which white is a default was not being reinforced to her in an explicit manner, but rather subconsciously just by observation she made herself, which she would ultimately reflect upon as she got older and make a conscious effort to correct. I find that fascinating, and I think Gloria Wecker's experience really underlines how our environment factors into the way we shape our worldview and indeed develop those subconscious biases we all have. Having said that, I think that the reason why so many authors subscribe to the narrative that young children don't see colour is due to the romanticised idea that anybody who is purely innocent doesn't see colour. To quote Akala, the denial of seeing colour is grounded in the idea that colour itself is a negative. Yes, I agree. And we see in Gwaku where he doesn't quite understand the situation that is unfolding around him. And maybe as a child reading this book in a school environment, it could be the first time the child is exposed to these ideas. So they're almost relating to Gwaku to figure out what is happening to him. And the reader learns as Gwaku does himself within the book. Regardless of colour, we want to understand what is happening with Gwaku and why he's being taken away, for what purpose. And as the book goes on, and with the help of a teacher to guide the learning, the reader can fully understand the scope of the situation. I think it's quite effective to help cater to the innocence of children by using Gwaku's innocence as a way to unpack his journey. Do you think the format of the book helps at all in making the story easier to understand for a younger audience? Yes, 100%. I appreciate how Kwaku's story is told and is also very visual for the younger audience. Yes, 100%. I appreciate how Kwaku's story is told and is also very visual for the younger audience it is aimed at. So there's no need to paint a picture with words. It is already there, which is very effective for learning, especially with children, as they aren't all painting different pictures and it is clear and remembered the same way by every child reading the book. And on that note, I think we are wrapping up this discussion point. We will be speaking again momentarily about our next point. So another theme which frequently crops up in our books is violence. That could take the form of sexual assault, though another example would be the mental abuse endured by those who are enslaved or the senseless violence enacted by the enslavers and overseers through their frequent lashings of the enslaved, often for just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Tyler, what are your thoughts on the violent presence across all three books? What I think was interesting throughout the books is the way that violence was presented as a never-ending cycle in which the senseless brutality is repeated generation after generation. For example, we see the same sexual violence being repeated to all three generations of women in El Slav and Khabura, demonstrating how the violence was seemingly never-ending and inescapable. Furthermore, some of the violence is more subtle. For example, the way that many of the enslaved girls are manipulated or tricked into having sexual relations with the white masters. At first it seems like a consenting relationship, but then you learn the master's true intentions, which highlights the power imbalance, helping to show the ways in which the enslaved people, especially women, were exploited. 
Tyler, I just remembered earlier you drew a contrast between the slavers' religious beliefs and the barbarity they inflicted on young women. That got me thinking about one particular distressing scene in All Slavin Geboren. It was related to us as a flashback of the grandmother Shani, then aged 14. She was shackled on the ship and had to endure various crew members repeatedly raping her at night and then falling pregnant soon after. We see it here with Afra in Kwaku as well. It is done indirectly and more subtly, but the sexual violence in Afra being pregnant still highlights the issue in the book, even if it is less prominent and not shown on the pages. Do you think these heavy themes are appropriate for a children's book, though? Well, the books are based on actual historical events, even if these specific characters aren't real. This was a reality for countless enslaved people throughout history. Despite it being uncomfortable for most people, especially children, to read about this, I think that it's a part of history that needs to be taught and acknowledged so that all that suffering isn't just swept under the rug. In our overview of the theme of violence, I think there's been one commonality so far. The violence we see across all three books all occurred as a result of betrayal. A betrayal of trust, of decency, through deception. I agree with your assessment there, Tyler. I think even going back to the genesis of Alslavin Geboren, we encountered the original betrayal, if you will. It is explained in the chapter titled Het Begin, and it reads... Ze zouden naar een betere wereld gaan, dat had het dorpshoofd zelf gezegd. Een wereld zonder honger, zonder dorst, zonder angst. Er waren al mensen naar die mooie wereld toegereisd, ook uit haar dorp. Zij zouden op Shani wachten, aan de andere kant van het grote water. For our non-Dutch-speaking audience, in the passage Professor Yurugu just described, African people were taken away and promised a better life. Now, regarding the people who were sold to European traders, in the prologue to Alslavin geboren, the author clarifies... Soms had een dorpshoofd geen slaven, omdat hij nooit van een andere stam had gewonnen. Wilde hij toch geweren en jenever hebben, dan kon hij zijn eigen volk verkopen. This could be roughly translated as, sometimes a village chief had no slaves, because he had never bested another tribe. But if he still wanted guns and gin, then he would sell his own people. Another vital component to all three books is the idea of perspective. Who gets to tell these stories and what parts of history do we get to hear? That is the million dollar question in this section where we will take a look at the authors of these books, how they decided to create these books, are they completely fictional, which we have already discussed briefly, and how they decided to represent these people and their stories. Is it an accurate and fair portrayal or should they have been told in a different way by different people? Who gets to share this story is important and just as relevant as a story being told. So Professor Yurugu, what do you think about what I've just said? I know there's quite a lot to unpack, so feel free to start anywhere. Mm, I find the transactional language used in reference to the enslaved people really jarring. I actually think that out of all the books, it was Al Slavin Geboren which best contextualized how absurd the situation was. It was in the book's prologue where I found the following passage. Pas in the 19th eeuw, Werd, werd de slavernij verboden, maar toch ging de handel in mensen nog een hele tijd door. I always found that with the term slavenhandel, a degree of humanity is lost. Yes, I would agree that the terms slavenhandel and handel in mensen do conjure up slightly different images, with the latter one definitely having a stronger emotive response. I'm still taken aback when I visit the National Archives in Paramaribo, for instance, to study the census records of that time. For a very long time, Black bodies were treated as possessions, and the way that they were recorded in the census reflects that. This is also punctuated by the reality that, say for instance, 
if an enslaved person was driven to suicide by jumping overboard, an insurance payout for a loss of property would be payable to the enslaver. Further, following the abolition in 1863, the Dutch government paid 300 guilders to the enslavers to compensate them for each freed slave. I know you're familiar with the work of the Afro-Surinamese author Anton de Kamp. Did anything stand out to you about the way he relays the journey from Africa to the plantations? Mm, as an example, de Kamp writes, Vader, moeder and kinderen worden verkocht aan verschillende blanken, which I think encapsulates more precisely how the situation was experienced by the enslaved people themselves. This brings us to another important aspect, which is also relevant to the subject of perspective. All three of the books that we're discussing today were written by white Dutch authors. When it's so vital that these stories are told in the right way and that everything is well represented, are white Dutch people really the ideal choice to highlight all the complexities that surround this topic? Yes, on the one hand, it is black history being taught. But on the other hand, when it's all being done by white people, it's pretty likely that pre-existing biases that result from hundreds of years of colonial rule could pollute the educational quality of the books. Playing the devil's advocate, isn't there an argument to be made that anybody should be able to write a narrative? Yes, I think if you do a lot of research, it is possible to create an impactful and educational story. But not only do I believe the voices of black authors should be amplified when it comes to telling black history, it's also impossible for many white people to fully grasp some of the concepts addressed in the books when they don't face the long-lasting social repercussions of these events every day. I completely agree with you there, Tyler. However, I do think anyone should be allowed to write the stories that they want. There is a sense of taking ownership, though, given the history behind these stories. I think more representation is needed from those who actually feel or have felt oppression due to the history portrayed in these books. However, without these authors, would many stories have been forgotten and not told at all? I do agree with Dr. Dorr regarding there being a need to amplify black voices with relation to black history today. Historically, however, there sadly is no way for us to hear the many repressed voices of the black people who lived through that era. I do imagine the threats and ramifications posed to, for instance, legally recognized black free men, because there were a small population of them in the Caribbean prior to abolition, would have discouraged them from writing literary appeals not to mention other factors such as a lack of resources and being denied an education. Can you tell us a bit more about literary appeals and what form they would have taken during slavery? Literary appeals often took the form of slave autobiographies. These literary appeals really proved to be a powerful tool in the fight for abolition. Many of them were penned by white authors such as Harriet Beecher Stowe's famous novel Uncle Tom's Cabin which had the most reach out of all the slave autobiographies. In fact, her book was only outsold by the Bible at the time it was published. An example of a slave narrative by a black author would be the interesting narrative of the life of Oluwada Aquiano, which was first published in London in 1789. That is quite remarkable for its time. In fact, in my career, I have never come across a black slavery narrative regarding the two former Dutch colonies, which had the biggest enslaved population, and those are Suriname and Curaçao, and nothing from around that time when slavery was at its height, which is the late 18th century. We move on to our final assessment about the books. Let's discuss a few topics which are, in a way, ever-present in all three books. One of these topics being the gruesome journey from home to the Americas. Why don't you lead us off, Professor? I thought it was great that Al Slavin Geboren starts out with a prologue, 
which informs the reader of the circumstances in Africa at the time. It includes this short extract. In the 17e and 18e eeuw werden steeds meer mensen uit Afrika gehaald. Echt miljoenen. Now I thought the inclusion of the short line echt miljoenen was genius because that's the author speaking directly to the audience and is done in a very familiar tone. The African people like Shani are depicted as ordinary people prior to the journey which led them into an enslaved existence. I think that it's very important that black people are not solely contextualized as victims in the storytelling about this era. For Humoivitig, Ben, there wasn't really any real reference made to the journey from Africa to the Americas, as this book is told from the perspective of white people. Generally, though, the young girl doesn't really show much interest in the past of the enslaved people, and therefore it's never really brought up. How was the journey portrayed in Kwako, Ethan? Yes, I'm glad you asked. So in Gwaku, we actually see in the first few pages, he's actually in his village with his family. And we see his brothers always being taken with him, one being constantly mentioned throughout the book, Kwabena. Throughout his whole journey, Kwaku is constantly looking for him, but never manages to succeed. And I think this is quite powerful as Kwabena is his home, his family. And it highlights that Kwaku never really found his brother, his home or his family again with it being stripped away from him at the start, making it even more exciting for the reader, as it is not just implied, we actually see him stripped of everything that he once knew. So just moving on to our final thoughts now, what is good or bad about using these short stories and how effective do you find them as a tool to educate the youth? For me, an interesting point is that the word slave is used throughout the books instead of the phrase enslaved person. This brings into question if offensive terminology should be used in these books in order to educate the audience, such as how in the UK we often read books with the N-word in schools. On one hand, not discussing this language will probably just lead to ignorance, but on the other hand, is the word slave really appropriate here when we have no explanation of why we no longer use this term and see it as offensive? Therefore, it could be argued that the audience isn't even really learning anything. That's a very good point, and I think this relates to the Roald Dahl controversy, which I personally never noticed growing up when I read his books, which just goes to show you how desensitised we are as a nation, or at least myself, and this ignorance perpetuates the issues we have gone over. This highlights the importance of how discussions around this topic are really important, otherwise I would have never noticed. Yeah, um, having thought more carefully about the gravity of what we discussed and the themes we discussed today, I think consideration does need to go into how one makes a story that speaks to people in the right way, because that leaves a long-lasting impression. I continue to advocate for a reform of the school curriculum, as I would like more narratives to be learned about black population groups throughout history. Yes, and going back to quite a while ago, you used the term critical fabulation in reference to the book Al Slavin Khaborda. Could you explain more about the phenomenon, please? Beautiful term, isn't it? Right. It was a term coined by Sadia Hartman, and it can be defined as the following. Hard research and scattered facts. With so many voices stifled, I would say it's a critical tool to put forward a narrative. Do you find the use of it to be positive, or could it have a pervasive effect on how we look at history? I think it is extremely important to have this kind of representation of black history, even if that means stretching the truth a little bit. These stories might not be 100% based on facts, but almost no good stories are. If it means we get to see important stories being represented, then so be it. On the 19th of December 2022, 
the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, officially apologised for the role the Netherlands played in slavery. Although this was a welcome move, with representatives and delegates from the former Dutch colonies in attendance, the planning of this event was still very much in the terms of the Netherlands, failing to consider the dates which would have been more significant to the former colonies, such as the Day of Abolition. Furthermore, not enough notice was given in advance, which consequently undermined the spiritual culture that exists in the Caribbean. 160 years since the abolition of slavery and stories are still being written about this history, with Gwaku being as recent as 2018, and it is important as it must never be forgotten, how we learn from the past to develop as a society for the future generations, learning from our mistakes and realising that ignorance is most certainly not bliss. Listen! Listen to the voices unheard, the voices stifled before they could be heard. <laughs> 